Good morning. It's good to see the bottom half of your faces. Uh, hey, just real quick before we get started, um, those, those of you who are seniors, you're kind of like scattered out all over the place, so I can't see you. Um, you guys endured a lot to get to the, to the point where you are today. A lot that um, when you're 10, 10, 15 years down the road and you talk with others that are in your friend circle at that point, um, you will have a little bit of a unique take on what it took to get yourselves through your high school experience. Because the last three semesters of that experience were wildly different than what the rest of the people that you'll interact with experienced on their way out the door. And so uh, those, those lessons in that experience, though unique, um, the, Lord, the Lord is sovereign. And he has uniquely used that to mold you into the people that not only that you are now as you graduate high school, but also the people that you will continue to be as you go about the rest of your life. And so uh, in a way that's like a little bit different maybe than, than other years, that's not to diminish any of the, the graduation experience for any other class, but congratulations on getting to this point for weathering kind of the storm of all the things that you might have missed out on or that got canceled or that got changed or that looked different. Um, congratulations on getting to this point and being able to close the book on that, that chapter of life and to step into the next one um, with all that the Lord has placed within you as a result of your high school experience. And know that we as, as a whole church family, as a staff, not just Adam and Erica, our student ministry, but all of us, we're, we're praying for you and what comes next. Um, it's, a, it's been a joy to get to serve you and your families over the, the last few years. Um, you guys were students actually when I was still the student pastor. So it's kind of like this weird, Erica was starting. I was toward the end of, of being the student pastor. Um, but it's been a joy to get to serve you guys. And it will be a joy to get to see what the Lord does in your lives next. So congratulations on getting to this point. We're proud of you guys and we look forward to what, what comes next. Um, let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather and to spend time worshiping together, to get to spend time in your word, spend time as a church family, to get to recognize uh, a group here among us, God, that, uh, that you're moving in and that you're working in and that you've got plans for in the future. God, I pray that the fullness of our time together and all the different aspects and components. God, I pray that it would be glorifying to you. God, I pray that it's something that would be encouraging to us. Lord, something that would send us out from here um, feeling refreshed, feeling encouraged, feeling challenged or convicted where your spirit might move in that way. God, I pray that the result of our time together as a church family every Sunday would be something that strengthens us in our commitment to walking in relationship with you. God, something that teaches us more about what that looks like, something that ultimately knits us together as a church family as we come to worship around the unifying reality of the gospel. God, I pray that it's something that is like a, an oasis of uh, fresh water in the middle of what can oftentimes feel like a difficult slog uh, from week to week. God, would your spirit be present here among us? Move powerfully through the proclamation of your word. 
move powerfully as we worship together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The topic this morning, we're going we're to be in Luke chapter 8, and so if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to there, if you're someone who is visiting with us because you've got a graduating senior or maybe you're back with us and it's been a little while, we've been working through the gospel of Luke for a number of months. We actually started all the way back before Christmas. Um, we're not halfway yet, but um, we're, we're kind of tracking our way through Luke, and the, the whole topic this morning is about transformation. That word can get a little uh, overused. That word can get a little bit watered down. Like when we talk about transformation, we're not talking about slight change. Transformation is a dramatic shift. It's something that takes a person from being one thing and then reworks them into something totally different. Literature and movies give us pictures of this. Um, You know, the, the picture of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, where he goes from being miserly and stingy to having like a total disposition change. That's a transformation. A physical transformation would be like Alice in Wonderland. Like she's working her way through the various stages of that story or that movie, and she's being transformed. She's tiny at one point. She's huge at another point. In Beauty and the Beast, like basically everyone in the castle there gets transformed at the end. They go from being like tea kettles to be in humans. That's transformation. That's not small change. Those are significant, radical changes. And this morning, what we're going to see as we pull together not just this one section in Luke chapter 8, but actually the whole chapter, is that the Word of God works that kind of transformation. God's Word, when received, is not after slight change. It's after total transformation. And so we're going to just circle around this one point the whole time that I'm up here this morning. And that's that the word of God is totally transformative. Let me give just like a quick Luke recap. In Luke 1 verse 4, Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke, says exactly why it is that he's writing. So that you, his reader, may be certain of the things that you have heard. Like all the accounts, all the circumstances, all the interactions, all the miracles, all the teachings, all the situations are displaying something about the truth of who Jesus is so that we, as the readers, would have certainty about this man. Luke's miracle accounts, which is what we're going to see this morning, they tend to come in little groupings. And so the first set of those groupings was in chapters four and five. Large crowds were present when those took place. They were done in almost like an evangelistic sort of sense, displaying to these onlooking masses the truth about who Jesus, the Son of God, this Messiah is. And we looked at those accounts a number of weeks ago, and the truth that we drew out is that as the eternal Son of God, Jesus is authoritative and he is powerful. The next grouping of miracles comes here in Luke chapter 8 in the very start of Luke chapter 9. And there are four of them. You'll notice as we read through these that they happen not in the presence of large groups anymore. They happen more so in the presence of the disciples. Now, it's not like a perfectly clean sort of distinction. And I'm not necessarily saying that Luke grouped them together because of that difference. It's just something that's kind of present in the text. And the implications of those miracles, while still underlying the fact that Jesus is powerful and authoritative, highlights the fact that when Jesus acts in these ways, 
Transformation is the result. Not slight change, not something small that could have been attributed to a different circumstance. Luke is highlighting in all of these miracles the fact that when Jesus acts and when Jesus speaks, he radically transforms things. That's what we're going to see this morning. And the same is true today, that if you have a genuine interaction with Jesus, you are transformed. There is dramatic change. And specifically, it's the word of God that does that transformation. Luke 8, the whole chapter has been about the word of God from the mouth of God. Jesus spent from verses 4 to 15, actually 4 to 21, teaching about the word of God. He's been telling us how it is that we are to receive it, not just in your head, but that reception would go all the way down to your heart and work its way out into your hands. And that reception ultimately displays itself in the fruit of a person's life. Then these miracle accounts take us into seeing that sort of fruit uh, producing transformation in action. So we're going to look at the first two of these four miracle accounts this morning. One involves a uh, a demon-possessed man, the other involves a squall mixed into the whole thing, is like history's most famous herd of pigs, a group of townspeople, and a few very poignant questions that we're going to talk about this morning. The passage is very, very rich. We could probably spend weeks in just verses 22 to 39. And so I want to move sort of like methodically and intentionally through this without rushing, but I do want to be able to point out various aspects of these passages. So the the way that we're going to do this is we're going to read 22 to 39. It's one account. Jesus travels to a place and a storm happens on the way. And then when he gets there, there's an incredible interaction that takes place. And so we're going to kind of take the two pieces in the one big story. And I'm going to make some observations about both parts of them. I'm going to just point out five things that I think it's important for us to see as they travel and five things that it's important for us to see as Jesus interacts with this demoniac. And then I'm going to like step back, make some theological observations, and then we'll draw some practical conclusions. So if you've got Luke 8 open there in front of you, I'm going to read from verses 22 down to 39. It says this. One day, he, that's Jesus, and his disciples got into a boat, and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion he said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to, banish him to not to banish him to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on a hillside. 
The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him. But he sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And he went off, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. One account, two sort of scenes that point to one big point. And that one big point isn't divorced from the rest of Luke 8, nor the broader scope of the gospel of Luke. Luke is drawing our attention to the transformative power of the word of God. So let me just make some observations. We'll start with verses 22 to 25, which is the story of them crossing the lake. Observation number one, it is Jesus's idea to cross this lake. Jesus is sovereign, right? So he leads the disciples out onto this lake and into this storm. We're told all throughout scripture that creation was created by Jesus, holds together through Jesus, exists for Jesus. That's Romans 11 and Colossians chapter 1. So Jesus has the disciples get into a boat and head out onto the lake. And is the storm a surprise to Jesus? Absolutely not. In this incredible mystery that is difficult for us to understand, sleeping Jesus there at the front of the boat is sustaining the very life and breath of each one of his disciples while simultaneously nurturing the existence of the fish below the boat and commanding the storm above it. Like his, his ways, his thoughts, his being is higher than ours. And Jesus asleep with all the mystery of what it means that he took on flesh and he, you know, stepped out of heaven, and how does all of this interact? We, we're not 100% sure, but what we do know for certain is that Jesus is sovereign. And so he falls asleep in the boat, and at the same time is not surprised that the storm pops up. We understand severe weather here in the Midwest. Like, we live in the part of the country where cold air sweeps down from the north. It's hit, you know, Uh, into a large air mass of like warm, moist air from the Gulf. And we oftentimes end up where those two things smash into each other and we get tornadoes. A similar thing would happen on the Sea of Galilee. It sat very low, but there were mountains on one side. So cool air would sweep down over the Sea of Galilee. It would hit the warm air sitting there over this large body of water and not tornadoes, but it would pop up these huge squalls. Jesus gets into the boat And that happens. And these are experienced fishermen. They know what it is to work out on this lake. They know what these storms are like. And this storm is so severe that those fishermen who have encountered these squalls before are terrified that they're going to die. And there's Jesus snoozing. And sovereign God of the universe, Jesus, led the disciples out onto that lake, into that storm. Second observation is this. It's not the storm that wakes up Jesus. It's the disciples' plea for help. Jesus is fully aware of that storm. He's both commanding it and sleeping through it. 
He's sovereign, which means he knows exactly where his life is headed. And he's not dying in a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He knows that. He's going to a cross. And even when his life ends there on the cross, his life isn't actually ending, right? So there's Jesus asleep because this storm is going to do nothing to me. The storm doesn't wake up Jesus. It's his disciples' plea for help that wakes him up. When they cry out to him, he's responsive. Observation number three. It's with a simple word that Jesus calms this storm. We're told that he gets up, rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased and there was a calm. That's verse 24. What's the implication of that like in the whole run of Luke chapter 8? The implication is that nature is fertile, fruit-bearing soil for the word of God. Like God speaks, creation obeys. This storm bears the fruit of Jesus' word. Peace, be still, and there's calm. That storm goes from absolute chaos, we're going to die, we're getting swamped in this boat, to no wind, no waves, right at Jesus' word. That's the power of Jesus speaking. That's the power of God's word. Observation number four. The storm gets rebuked. The disciples get a rhetorical question. So like Jesus gets up because the disciples wake him up. He rebukes this storm. It obeys instantly, bears the fruit of his word. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, where is your faith? They don't answer. Like the next thing they do is ask each other a question. (laughs) Give the disciples a little bit of credit in this. They know that as this storm is raging, that the guy sleeping in the boat has the answer, right? So they feel like they're going to die. They do the right thing and they go to Jesus and say, hey, we're going to die. Do something. And Jesus gets up and does something. And he calms this storm. They go to Jesus, which is absolutely the right thing. They have some measure of faith. And so Jesus wakes up, calms the storm, and then looks at them and says, where is it? Like, get it out. Put it into use. He's not saying, get some faith. He's not saying to them, I can't believe you don't have faith. He's saying, I know you've got some of it. You woke me up because you knew I could do something. Now, where is that faith? Get it out. Put it to use. We'll come back to that in a minute. The last observation on this part is this. The account ends with the disciples' question hanging in the air. Who then is this? Like, who's this guy? We woke him up because we thought he could do something, and then he did something way beyond what we thought he could do, and he totally calmed this storm. And we're told that the disciples are afraid. Now, they were afraid when they woke up Jesus, afraid of the storm. Then Jesus does the thing that they're hoping that he could do, and now they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of Jesus. The word there in Greek isn't like 
fearful, kind of scared. It's like respect. They're like marveling at Jesus. They've got this overwhelming respect for who Jesus is and what he's just done. And they're looking at each other like, who is this man that can do this? And that's where the account of crossing the lake ends. Then they get out on the other side and they've got this interaction with a man that's possessed by a legion of demons. So some observations on the second part of this. Look at verse 27. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. The demon-possessed man comes to Jesus, not the other way around. Now there are like a lot of questions that swirl around that. Is it the demons that led the man to Jesus? Is it the man possessed by the demons who knows, here's the just Jesus guy is coming and he goes out there. How did he get out of the chains? Did the demons, like we're told, like break him out of there? There's a lot of questions that surround that, but Jesus gets out of the boat and he doesn't have to go to the tombs to look for the man. The man comes from the tombs to Jesus. They get out of the boat and this guy is there looking for something. And this man, with all of his demon inside of him, with all of the effects of that, he is a picture of the turmoil of Satan and sin and evil. He's the living embodiment of what evil can do to a human. In his case, he's been possessed by what we're told is a legion of demons. Demon possession is something that is less prevalent in our world and society today than it is when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus. But you don't have to be possessed by demons for evil to be able to create the same kind of turmoil within the life of an individual. Sin can create that kind of turmoil. We're told later in sort of like a flashback that the man was naked, chained, living among these tombs. He's out of his mind. Sin, allowed to just run rampant, we're told in Scripture, wants to kill and destroy. Like that is what Satan does. That is what sin does. And so if sin is allowed to run to its desired end, it will want to take everything from you. Leaving you and your brokenness kind of laid bare, naked there for everyone to see, leaving your actions enslaved to the cravings of your flesh, leaving your mind subject to your urges and your desires. You don't need to be possessed by a legion of demons in order for evil to create turmoil within your life. This man is a very vivid picture of that reality. Notice in verse 28, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. They don't want to be cast into the abyss. They want like mercy from Jesus. So it's actually the demons that suggest the, the herd of pigs on the hill nearby. They know exactly who this man is. The disciples, they got out of the boat and they're like, who's this guy? The demons know exactly who Jesus is. You're son of the most high God. And you have the ability to torment us, 
to send us into the abyss. And that reference to the abyss, that is the place that Revelation speaks of, where Satan and all of his demons will be sent when Jesus comes back and he puts a full and a final end to sin. That abyss. They're saying, don't send us there. So note, the demons know Jesus has the ability to do that. They know that he could do that with a simple command of his word. And they know exactly what their final place is going to be. The demons have no question about Jesus and they have no question about like their hierarchy, hierarchy and their place at the end of all things. And these demons are saying, just don't send us there yet. There's some pigs over there. Send us into the pigs. They're like begging for mercy. And with a simple word, observation number four, the demons are cast out. The departure of those demons takes this man from a picture of turmoil to a picture of tranquility. When the people from the town arrive on the scene, there he is, seated, dressed, in his right mind, at the feet of Jesus. And it's also worth noting, like the storm, the demons receive the word of Jesus and they do exactly as Jesus says. Go into the pigs. So the demons take off into the pigs. They're immediately perfectly obedient to the authoritative, powerful word of God. And the result is utterly transformative for the man. And so then observation number five, the story ends with this man as an evangelist to the very people who want nothing to do with Jesus. At the end of the account, all the people of the Gerasene region asked him, Jesus, to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. And so getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to go with him. So the man wants to go with Jesus, but he said, Go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. The town is gripped by this fear. And at least in the CSB, I don't know how your particular Bible translates it. The kind of fear that the town has gets a different translation into English in the CSB than the kind of fear that the disciples have in the boat. We're told that it was, they had fear and amazement with the disciples. We're told then that the town has great fear down at the bottom. They're they're actually two different Greek words. What the town has is not respect and marveling and awe for Jesus. What the town has is scared kind of fear. The kind of fear that comes from realizing that Jesus and following him or being obedient to him might cost you something like thousands of pigs and all the money that could come from them. So the town has that sort of fear. And the man wants to follow Jesus. And just like a really quick note about this. This is one of the things that could get a whole sermon. But as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke already, sometimes following Jesus means leaving your tax collecting booth or your fishing boat and literally following Jesus. That's Levi, James, and John. Sometimes following Jesus means using your financial means to support him. That's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. We saw that at the start of chapter 8. Here, following Jesus means staying behind and being an evangelist. All of those are obedient actions. There are universal truths when it comes to following Jesus and being obedient to him and transformed by his words, but there's also the reality that that he deals with each one of us compassionately and gently and intentionally and individually. Now, the individual way that he works with each person cannot contradict the universal truths of what it means to follow him. So you can't wake up one morning and say, God told me to rob the bank. 
He didn't do that. But you could wake up one day and say, I feel God is stirring me to go and be a missionary somewhere. And that could be an obedient act for you that God is not calling someone else to. Someone else could wake up and say, I feel like God is stirring within me to support financially this person that wants to go overseas. And that would be an obedient act for them. God deals with us individually and gently and compassionately. And it's not always the same. And we can cheer one another on in the individual ways that God is leading each individual person while simultaneously holding one another to the universal truths of what God calls all of us to as followers of him. And so this whole account ends with this picture of the power of God's word. The storm obeys. The demons obey. The man transformed by the casting out of the demons obeys. And the town says, Jesus, get out of here. And in what should be some of the most like powerful words in scripture, Jesus says, okay, I'll leave. But then see the mercy here, but I'll leave this man behind to continue to tell you about the truth of the gospel. This is such a beautiful picture at the end of that. Like that could get a month's worth of sermons, but it's an incredible picture there. So the word of God is totally transformative. Creation receives it and is transformed. That storm goes from chaos to calmness. The demons receive it and the man is transformed from turmoil to tranquility. The word of God is finding good soil to use all the images of Luke chapter eight. It's bearing fruit. It's not being put under a bed or a basket. It's revealing what's concealed, shedding light on what is hidden, taking from those who think they have the town, creating the family of God, this man, who's a picture of discipleship at the end of this thing. So some theological observations. The bigger picture is not just that the word of God is transformative. It's that when it's received with humility, the word of God is totally transformative. Like That's the implication for a human. God's word transforms totally, but this town doesn't receive it. When we receive it with humility, that's the parable of the soils. Nature receives the word of God with humility. The very forces of evil receive the word of God. Now, I don't know if that's with humility or not, but they obey. Like he's sovereign and they know it and they receive it. Hearing and receiving, that's the point of the parable of the soils. And what's the evidence that the word of God has been heard and received? We're told in the parable of the soils that it is fruit. And so the fruit in this passage tells us who does and who does not receive the word of God. The storm, yes. The demons, yes. The man, yes. The town, no. Another sort of theological observation. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. We've seen this before, but what a picture of that in this story. The same Jesus who's worn out from all of this ministry and needs a nap turns around and commands a storm and a legion of demons. Like, that is incredible. I'm so tired from all this ministry, I need to take a nap at the front of this boat. I'm so powerful that I'm gonna wake up and calm this storm down and then I'm gonna cast out a legion of demons and that is all in the same man. Like that is the Jesus that we interact with. And so a few weeks ago when we were dealing with another account in the Gospels and, and I said, the big question is, do you know who you're dealing with? Like that is who Jesus is. And the disciples are in the boat like, who are we dealing with here? That he would be attentive to our cries 
and yet powerful enough to calm this storm and then cast out those demons. His his humanity doesn't threaten his divinity. His divinity does not diminish his humanity. One does not discount the other at all. He is fully and completely both things. Capable of taking a nap and controlling a storm. The third kind of theological observation is this. Satan and his demons have no question about the identity of Jesus. It's worth noting and celebrating that Jesus, God, reigns entirely supreme over the spiritual forces of evil. He says jump and demons would say, how high? Like, that's the power of who Jesus is. And it is good, good news that there is no force of evil in this universe that runs unchecked or unhindered. It's all held under the eternal sway of God's sovereignty. That's good news to hold on to. Those are kind of the theological things from the passage. What about the practical conclusions? I'm going to give four of these. The first one is this, and it's that to receive God's word is to be transformed by it. That's the entire thrust of Luke chapter 8. You can tell who's receiving the word of God because they're being transformed by the word of God. This is what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. How is it that we receive the word of God in that kind of way? Pray before you interact with the word of God, whether that's in your own quiet time or in a sermon on a Sunday morning or in a podcast somewhere else or in your small group or your D group or when your kids go off to Kids Point. Be intentional while you're listening, before you're listening, after you listen, and then walk in obedience. To receive the word of God is to be transformed by it. Those seeds bear fruit. That lamp casts out darkness. That which is hidden within the broken corners of our hearts is revealed and lovingly brought into obedience by the grace of God through the power of his word. Those who are far from God are brought into the family of God by the power of his word. The very act of receiving the gospel is to be transformed. We're told old is gone. The new has come. You're a new creation when you receive the truth of the gospel. Walking in the gospel and being sanctified is to be increasingly transformed by the word of God over the process of a lifetime. And the effective agent in all of that transformation is not you. It's God's grace through the power of his word. John, the gospel of John at the very beginning tells us that Jesus is the word of God. He is the living embodiment of the very word of God. And so, the transformation that Jesus brings begins with receiving the grace of God given to us through the giving of Jesus on the cross. That is where your transformation according to the word of God begins. You, you, you can't begin to be transformed into the image of Jesus until you've received God's grace through the giving of Jesus on the cross. And the good news, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that with a single word at the end of all things, God is going to transform all things into their glorified state. Both the the broken world is gonna be made completely new. You are gonna get glorified bodies and we're gonna be something entirely different. And that is going to be totally transformative. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna look the same in my glorified body, but I hope that some things change. 
and that that change is going to be totally transformative. It's going to have nothing to do with me. Jesus is going to say a single word at the end of all things, and Satan and his demons are going to be cast into the abyss, and the whole earth and the heavens are going to be recreated into something totally new, and so are we. That's the good news of the gospel. And so when something is going on in life, like I don't want to get ahead of myself and I'm running out of time, but when something's going on in life, I recently finished a book by Tim Keller called Hope in Times of Fear. And he tells this little story about a woman in his congregation who was battling cancer. And over the course of her struggle with that, he would ask her, how are you doing? And she would say, oh, it's nothing that the resurrection won't fix. Like that is the good news of the gospel that with a single word, We've got the down payment of the total transformation that's going to happen because we've seen it in Jesus and we've been told that he's coming back and we're all going to be made entirely new. So what's going on in your life? I don't know, but it's nothing that the resurrection isn't going to one day completely transform and heal. Like that is the good news of the power of the gospel. And if you want that down payment, it begins at the cross with a reception of the word of God, Jesus, into your life. Practical conclusion number two. (laughs) Jesus is present with you right now and your cries are compelling to him. They're compelling. Like that is the model throughout all of scripture. Not just here in the boat that this storm is raging and the disciples cry out to Jesus and that's the thing that wakes him up. But when Israel cries out to the Lord from their slavery, In Egypt, in Exodus, it is compelling to the Lord. When Job cries out to the Lord, even though his crying out to God is not perfect, it is compelling to God. When the psalmists cry out, it's compelling. When the leper cried out earlier in the Gospel of Luke, it was compelling. When you cry out today in the middle of your circumstances, your circumstances which are not catching God off guard in the least way, when you cry out, it is compelling. And it doesn't mean that he's going to entirely or completely change your circumstances here and now, but it means that he is listening and he hears and he will meet you in the middle of that and again He will help remind you, if need be, that whatever's going on in your life is not too bad for the power of his transformative word to one day heal entirely. Like crying out to him is compelling to him. I started playing soccer when I was super young. My sister, she's three and a half years older than me. She was playing soccer. I was like three years old. I wore my parents down until the time where they decided to find a soccer team that would let a three-year-old play soccer. So I get on this soccer team and it's, you know, like six and under or whatever, and it's boys and girls, and it was my first team sport experience. And you start learning that in a team sport kind of environment, uh, some people are better than others. And so I'm out on the field at one point with all my like three or four-year-old self-awareness, right? And I feel like the team surrounding me out on the field isn't the best players, So we're giving up some goals. And from a very young age, I've been incredibly competitive. And we gave up another one. And standing in the middle of the field, I turned to the sideline. My coach's name was Janet. And I I yelled, Janet! Give me some help, I'm dying out here! She sent in some subs, right? What do you do when the three-year-old yells that from the middle of the field? That's the disciples in the boat, and that cry is compelling to Jesus. They don't know exactly what he's going to do, but they know that he can do something. Jesus, we're dying in here. 
Help us. And he wakes up because our cries are compelling to him. And he hears those. Number three, fear can either push us toward God or it can pull us away from God. I'm not gonna do like a deep dive on the last 15 months of life here, but the whole fear over faith over fear thing has been like worn out. Fear is a drive. And it's not inherently a sinful thing. Now, fear within us can either be taken hold of by our flesh, and that can then start to control our action. That becomes a sin problem. Or fear can push us to the gospel, and we can allow the gospel to control our action. Look, when your teenager starts to drive, and they're a little bit hesitant to get on the highway and like hammer the gas, you as a parent, you're thankful that fear as a drive exists within your child. If you were in a plane and the door flew open on the side of the plane at 30,000 feet, fear would compel you to try to stay inside the plane. Like, that's not a bad thing. It's when our flesh grabs hold of fear and allows fear to become the thing that compels us in all of our action that then we've got a problem. Fear is a human drive. Hunger is a drive. Love is a drive. Anger is a drive. Sex is a drive. None of those in and of themselves are sinful. They become sinful when our flesh grabs hold of them and they become the controlling thing in our life. And so fear, particularly the fear of our situations or our circumstances that play out in our lives, at its best pushes us toward Jesus, toward the gospel. And then we allow our faith to be what drives our actions. Where's your faith? Get it out. Put it into use. You feel fear fear stirring up inside of you? Allow that drive to shove you toward the gospel, not pull you away from the gospel. And then as you go to Jesus with that fear, allow the gospel to be what controls your action, not that drive. Last, every single life situation teaches us something about Jesus. This is pulling all of Luke together. Every account that Luke is giving us here teaches us something about Jesus. And the same is true in my life, in your life, in the life of this church, in the unfolding of history, in the events of the world. There is something to be learned about Jesus in all things. That's the middle of this whole account. Who is this man? He just calmed a storm. Who is this guy? The disciples' question is just hanging in the air over this entire account. We spend all of our life answering that question, both intellectually and existentially. Who is this Jesus? Do I really believe that he's the Savior? Do I really believe that he's good in all things? Do I really believe that he's better than all things? Do I really believe that what my soul ultimately longs for, he holds within himself? Do I actually believe that because of the down payment of the resurrection, there's nothing in this life that uh, his word isn't going to transform at the end of all things? Every single life situation that Jesus leads us into presents us with an opportunity an opportunity to learn about him. And then one day, like Paul says, we'll see him face to face and we won't be looking through a mirror dimly anymore, but we will see clearly. We'll see exactly who he is in all of his radiant splendor and we'll find out that he is all that scripture said he was and infinitely more because human language and the human mind could not bear 
all the glory of who he is. All of life helps us grasp the reality of who Jesus is more and more fully, more and more deeply, more and more tenderly. And that also means that if we're willing to turn ourselves to Jesus, every life situation has the potential to be transformative, to mold us into the image of Jesus, to continue to put to death that which is of our sin and to continue to bring to life that which is of him. Brian, you guys can come up. I want to I end with this. This will, I'll try to be quick. I want to be like kind of gut level uh, honest with the application of this. And we could take any number of situations that exist here in the room, any number of situations over the course of an individual's lifetime. But I'll just speak from my own over the last year or so. As, as we've all tried to like navigate the challenges of the past year, and as I've tried to do so from a position of leadership with our church and our staff and our leadership team, that like looking at Jesus, like the disciples in the boat and saying like, hey, I'm dying here. Janet, send some help. Like, I'm dying here. I feel swamped. I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel like I can manage this anymore has forced me to continually ask the question, who's this guy that you keep crying out to? Let's say nothing changes. Let's say the situation doesn't become any less tense. Let's say COVID goes on for the next 10 years. Let's say the political situation remains incredibly polarized in our country. Let's say none of the social issues find any resolution. Who is that man? Do you actually believe that he is who you say he is from the pulpit of your church every single Sunday? Like at the very deepest level of who you are, do you actually believe that this Jesus is the man that you preach him to be when you stand up in front of your church? And I've had to look at the ugliness of that like square in the face for the last 15 to 18 months. Like when you stand up in front of your church, Tim, and you talk about this Jesus who hears your cries. You talk about this Jesus who is present with you in all circumstances. You talk about this Jesus who is compassionate and gentle and caring and loving. You talk about this Jesus who moves toward you in your brokenness. Do you or do you not actually believe that? And there have been moments where I'm you know, sitting there in front of the word of God at my desk or at home and I'm looking kind of into my own heart and into my own soul and I'm saying to myself, I want to believe that that is who Jesus is and I'm trying to, but it's hard. And there he is. Like willing to meet right in that place and be everything that he says that he is possibly without changing any of the circumstances, but willing and able and longing to transform me in the middle of those circumstances so that I become a more accurate depiction of Christ regardless of what's going on around me. And that has been, like, I don't know that I'm like super, I don't know that I'm super transformed at this point. I think I'm mostly just like, in the middle of it. And I, if the biography of my life right now, I would look like one of the disciples where we read and we're like, what is this guy doing? 
Like that would be the place where I'm at right now. And it's hard. And when the diagnosis comes that you didn't want or the job situation changes in a way that you weren't expecting or the difficulty in a relationship comes slamming into your life and you're looking around saying, I'm dying here, help me. There's Jesus present with authoritative, transformative, powerful word. And he wants to do something inside of you in the middle of that. Whether the circumstances change or not. And part of what he meets you with right in the middle of that is this comforting reality that with a single word at the end of all things, I'm going to make all of this right and you're going to look back and you're going to see that what happened in your life was what your soul needed in light of eternity. And it was painful and it was hard and you might not have wanted any piece of it but I was present with you there in it. I was compelled when you cried out to me and my word is authoritative and transformative and I'm ultimately good and compassionate. And like my own heart is trying to figure out how to grapple with those realities in light of everything that the last year has been. And I don't know where you are in your life or what's going on, but I can tell you with certainty that there's something to be learned about Jesus in the middle of that circumstance and there's something that he's trying to transform inside of you right in the middle of that circumstance. And he's good and he's gracious and he's compassionate when you cry out to him. He is compelled by that and he will meet you there. Amen? Amen. It's nothing that the resurrection won't fix, yeah? That's right. Let's stand up and worship together.